electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today, Ron Barron, the billionaire investor who has been there, done that in all kinds of volatility. I've never seen anyone really be consistently able to pick the stock market or the economy ever. He joins us live from the annual Barron Conference in New York City's Lincoln Center, marking 40 years since his fund was founded. You know, 40 years, pretty sweet. As a longtime Tesla investor, hear why he's bullish on Elon Musk and the prospects for Twitter. I'm not the expert in Twitter yet. I will be in a couple years, maybe sooner than that, but I'm not yet. It's Friday, November 4th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Andrew by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. And Becky Quick is reporting Uptown live from the annual Barron Conference. Good morning to you, Becky. Hey, good morning, guys. It's really good to see everybody. We are here this morning at Lincoln Center. This is the 29th annual Barron Investment Conference here in New York City. Today, we sit down with billionaire investor Ron Barron. His Barron funds have nearly $42 billion in assets under management, and about 11% of the firm's assets are in Tesla stock. Ron Barron is a believer in long-term opportunity and has warned about too much intervention from the government meddling in the economy. Here he is on our program back in August. Every single time there's been a financial panic, there's been a war, there's been a COVID, an economic uh, you know, uncertainty, chaos. Whenever these sort of things happen, the government steps in in every democracy that's ever existed and devalues our currency. And now, with the latest rate hike from the Federal Reserve, a fourth consecutive 75 basis point increase. This week, investors continue to worry if this was the right move. Today, our very own Becky Quick sits down with Ron at the 29th Annual Barron Conference, a gathering of Barron-invested businesses at Lincoln Center in New York City. The conference is back in person for the first time since 2019. I'll hand it off here to Becky. Ron, thank you for having us back here today, and uh, it's good to be back. It's great to be back. Thank you very much. The theme this year is anything is possible, and um, you're pretty much an example of, of just that. Yeah, so is Elon, uh, but Elon Moore, but boy, my career, my life has been pretty amazing. My grandparents would never believe it. Let's talk about how you feel the market is headed from here. If this was a generational buying opportunity. Okay, do one thing before we do that. Yes, you may. So, so uh, about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, my son Michael Barron and I went to Japan for two or three days, and then we went to uh, Korea. So we get to Korea on a Friday evening around, um, you know, four, Thursday evening, actually, at around uh, five o'clock at night, get to the hotel and picked up by a big SUV, big black SUV, get to the hotel, pull into the portico share, uh, driver runs around, opens up my door. As he opens the door, a black Tesla pulls up alongside of the car. I get out of the SUV, the man in the car jumps out of the car and goes, 
Ron Barron, can I have a picture with you? And Michael says, Dad, I'm really getting optimistic about this trip. This is Korea. They know you in Korea. That's because of CNBC. Well, so, so thank you. We, and we want to thank you for coming on with us all these years and talking so honestly about what you see in the markets and it helps our viewers, too. Um, let, let's talk about what you see right now, because, Ron, this is a pretty concerning time for a lot of people. Markets have been down substantially this year. Last month was a good one, but there are a lot of questions about whether that will last or whether that was a one-off, especially given what the Fed's doing right now. I, I know you take a, a few steps back from the market, but when you do, what do you see? Well, the way I think about it is that inflation is always present, always. And everything that's in my life and in everyone's life, uh, doubles in price. My, my whole life, it's four or five percent a year. So it's not two, it's not ten, it's not eight, it's, it's four or five percent a year. That means everything doubles in price on average about every 14 or 15 years. So I look back at my parents' house that they bought in 1948, the first one, it was $5,000. $5,000 is now worth $400,000. Uh, steak was, uh, you know, uh, meat was, uh, I think, 67 cents a pound when I was in law school. It's now $11 a pound, except if you go to Lobel's, and then it's $67 a pound. $67 a pound. I couldn't afford to shop there before. I still can't afford to shop there. But across the board, everything, tuition, uh, you know, cars, every single thing you want to buy. So you got to protect yourself somehow. And the way I protect myself is by investing in stocks. The stock market, on average, doubles about every nine or 10 years. So it doubles every nine or 10 years. Uh, and that's because businesses, on average, double nine or 10, every nine or 10 years. They grow about 7% a year, two or 3% real, three or 4% inflation. So every 10, nine or 10 years, the stock market doubles. And uh, every 15 years, 14 years, everything you buy falls in half. So the stock market's a hedge against that maintaining buying power. And we try to double your money every five or six years. And we've been able to do that just by investing in companies instead of going six or 7% a year, going 15% a year. So we try to double every five or six. The market doubles every nine or 10. So the easiest thing to do is just invest in an index fund. You don't have to worry about people like us picking stocks for you. And, uh, and that's a good thing. And then uh, the, the market, your money falls in half in value every 15 years. So somehow you got to protect against that. You got to own stuff. Is this time different? Is there a chance that you could be in for a period where you see 10 years or longer where the stock market really doesn't do anything? But I've never seen anyone really be consistently able to pick the stock market uh, or the economy uh, ever in my whole life, my whole career. Never. Anyone. And so I don't try. And all we try to do is find these great companies, competitively advantaged, great people, people we trust, people we like, people who like their heart. Uh, and, and invest with them for the long term. Tom Pritzker is my friend, and he's the head of Hyatt Corporation. And he says to me a few weeks ago, he says, you know, Ron, I've been trying to figure out for a long time how you do this. How does this happen? And uh, how do you pick stocks? And then he says, I figured it out. What you do is you try to find people who you really like, who you really admire, who you think are great leaders, uh, you like integrity, uh, you can trust them, and then you invest in, and then you find out a way to invest with them. If you like the person, you figure out some way to invest with them. That's what you do. And I think about that, and that is what we do. We try to find, and it goes back to when I was a kid, and I watched the people who were most successful in Asbury Park. And one guy owned uh, the rides on the boardwalk. You know, and they had there's a, a, a platform, so people go to the boardwalk and they buy the rides, or they play the Koopy Dolls, uh, or they had the Umbrella uh, franchise, or you know, the, or the Suntan franchise when I was selling uh, on the beach when a lifeguard. You know, so I see these things. And uh, my whole life, it's the people who, uh, my grandfather, you know, we started off as a construction worker, then he was a peddler, then he owned a candy store. He didn't own, sell the candy store. 
when things weren't going well, um, he just figured out, I'll put more pink balls in there so that uh, they can uh, bounce the penny on the street. So it's about just being long-term about everything. And the people who've done the best that I've watched have done, you know, just invested for the long-term in businesses, and that takes you through the inflation. Oh, one more thing. About a week ago, there was an article in the New York Times over the weekend uh, interviewing six or seven money managers about what they thought. And everyone said, well, we have to wait till inflation peaks and we have to wait till interest rates start going down. Except for one guy, that was Lloyd Blankfein. And he says that we get, we're going to get through this. He says, 1963, uh, we were stopping the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were stopping Russian ships in mid-ocean. And, and uh, they were putting missiles in Cuba. We got through that. They had National Guards shooting kids on campuses. We got through that. So we've had periodically, we had assassinations of political leaders. We got through that. So there's all these things that happen all the time. On the other hand, in entropy, you know, it's this uh, you know, chaos. Uh, whenever we've had it before, we've come through, and the stock market is 800, as we talked before, in 1982. It's now 32,000, 40 times. Would you, are you putting more money to work right now because you can find more opportunities because prices have come down? Or is this a situation uh, where you literally just keep your head down and it's business as usual? In uh, last November, last the end of October, you couldn't find things that were expensive, that were cheap. They were cheap. Now you can't find things that are expensive. You can't find anything that's expensive. And so if I had more money to invest, I would invest it. I'm invested. You're fully invested. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we get more money, but uh, and, and in chunks. And so as soon as we get it, we invest it. But, uh, you know, I find things everywhere. And that doesn't mean this is the bottom. It just means this is a great time to invest. When you're talking today, you're going to hear, uh, you know, Hyatt and, and, uh, and Vail. And those are companies in which we invest. And these are companies that, that are selling, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they buy in their stock. Uh, they have a couple of percent yield. They shrink their capitalization 7 or 8% a year. They're selling it 11 or 12 times. Uh, there are benefits from inflation. In the 1970s, when I was investing at the beginning, and there was a lot of inflation at that period of time, I couldn't understand. The stock market kept going down. I couldn't understand. It said, these businesses in which I'm investing, what they own keeps getting more valuable, and every day the stocks go down. Why is that? And of course, it ended. But in the 1970s, even though the stock market was going down, the businesses in which we're investing. So I'm a stockbroker. I'm selling research that I'm doing to hedge funds and mutual funds. And in the 1970s, the ideas that I'm selling, they're making money because the companies that we're investing in, they kept growing through it all. You know, it was Disney and McDonald's and Federal Express and Nike and Mattel and Hyatt. So they kept growing and Tropicana. And, uh, and so my clients, I, I wouldn't have been able to make a living if I, you know, if I was just being a long-term investor in the 1970s, I needed commissions. And so I would get people to buy one stock and then they'd double or triple and then they would sell it uh, and then to buy my next idea. So sell, sell Nike to buy Hyatt, you know? And what would happen is that uh, I look back after 10 years or 15 years, I said, man, I'm a disaster. Look at all those companies that I recommended selling and look what happened. I could have been rich. They were up, you know, I recommended they doubled or tripled or, you know, and, and they're up 30 times, 20 times, 50 times. So that's what happened. That's how I became a long-term investor. You, you are an incredibly loyal and long-term investor. And I, I remember at one point your average holding term was something like 12 years. I don't know what it is right now. Um, but there are points where you have sold out of companies. I, I think of a few. Like you're not in Generac anymore, I don't think. You're not in Ender Armour anymore. And these were stocks where you did love the management. You loved the people behind it. Well, Gen uh, uh, Under Armour... Uh, we did very well. We made about 
I don't know, seven, eight times their money. And then, uh, and then I felt that I made a mistake. And the stock fell in half and we sold it and we probably ended up making two or three times our money. But we've made a lot more uh, before we sold, uh, before, uh, by the time I sold. And, uh, and in the case of Generac, uh, I met Aaron Jagfeld a long time ago and I got you to buy a generator in your home. I said okay. you would be the great advertisement for Generac. And so this is, uh, we had a house in Westport, a weekend house, and whenever it rained, whenever it rained, we had no electricity, just gone. And so now we move out to East Hampton, and I say, this time I'm getting a generator. And so we had a giant generator we put out there. And now all of a sudden this company, Generac, is going public. And I said, boy, everyone should have a Generac. And so I, and only 1% of the houses did. So I tried to get it in the office, and not everyone in my office, not very few actually did, and you did. And, uh, and then uh, they would go public at 12 or $13 a share. And, uh, in the next, and I really liked the people who, were, uh, who owned it, and I thought this Aaron Jagfeld was amazing. And so, so we ended up uh, investing like 12 or $13 a share. And then in the next two years, we got $11 of return of capital dividend. So instead of having a 12 or $13 cost, we had a $1 cost. And then uh, the business is doing great. Hurricane Sandy comes along and the stock goes to 50 or $60 a share. And then we go visit and again, we were visiting regularly and they were buying some other industrial businesses and some motor businesses. And it didn't have the same kind of feeling it did before, although if I had been true to my idea about staying invested with someone, I would have stayed invested with him. He's a spectacular guy. So I sold. And the stock went to uh, 300. <laughs> and, and, but I kept it on my screen. This is just a reminder. Kept it on my screen. And then recently, because of the COVID play also, it went from 300 to 100. Yeah. Uh, but still, twice what I paid for it, twice what I sold it for. Are you still uh, looking at it? Periodically I do, but I'm also a big investor in a battery company, and uh, you know, which is uh, Tesla. Right. And so I always think that you know, the batteries are challenged to that. On the other hand, uh, you do have to have distributed uh, electricity, and uh, you can't just rely on your utilities. This is what happened in California. So you, had, you had the freeze in Texas. That was a big deal for this company. Then you had what was happening in California with the fires. And uh, that was a big deal for Generax. You know, you, you turn off your electricity. Well, if you don't have electricity, and then but yes, it's what how power is this? How it works? So I th I think about it periodically. And uh, Rebecca Ellen, who follows this for us, she says it's great. And I keep thinking I should be thinking and studying it again. But I don't have a surplus of cash right now. If I did have a lot of cash, I'd be thinking about it more. The, there may not be. I'm, I'm guessing that the person you've bet on the earliest and maybe made the most money on is Elon Musk. Is that the case? Uh, we have made a lot of money with him. And uh, right now we have an investment in Tesla, which is about uh, $4 billion. Uh, $1 billion is me, $3 billion for clients. And uh, uh, I sold about $1 billion of stock for clients. I was the last one to purchase personally. I don't buy stocks. I only invest in our mutual funds. I'm the biggest investor in our funds. Uh, but in this instance, I told our board of directors, I said, I committed, I'm not buying any stock. Uh, but what I'd like to do is I'm not going to buy it personally, but I want to buy it for Baron Capital. And so I'd like to invest $50 million. And uh, uh, I'm not going to uh, sell it until I sell every single share for clients. So we sold 20% uh, for clients. And I said that uh, I didn't want people to think I was crazy. They hear the stock went, it did four or five years, it stayed stable. And then it went up 20 times, just like I said it would. And uh, so, uh, so I said, uh, everyone was criticizing me. They criticized me for not buying, for, for buying it initially. Then they criticized me at the end for, for not selling it. So you shouldn't buy it. And then if you own it, you made all that money. Now you should sell it. They didn't tell me to buy it. So, 
So I sold it for them, and then we owned. You, you sold some to make sure that it wasn't too much of your funds at some point, yeah, because it, became, it had grown so rapidly. It became yes, it became well. It's still in Baron Partners Fund. It's forty percent of the fund, and now it's forty percent. And in Baron Focus Growth Fund, it's twenty percent, twenty-two percent. So nobody has funds like that. But my cost is so low. It's like in those funds, thirteen dollars, and stock is two thirty. I think I'm going to make seven times from here in the next ten years. I make uh, one and a half or two times in the next uh, five years, three years. Mm -hmm. So I think in 2025, I think it'll be five or 600. It's now 228. And then I think that by uh, in 10 years, eight or 10 years, we ought to uh, be somewhere around four and a half trillion dollars. Elon says now it's a 700 billion dollar market cap. Uh, Elon says he thinks it's going to be uh, bigger than Apple and Saudi Aramco together. You believe that? Yes. Hmm. So I think that in you know, it's sort of hard to believe, right? Yeah. Um, but in, uh, in 2030, if he does 20 million cars a year, there's 100 million years of cars a year that are being sold right now. If he does 20 million cars a year then and they're $50,000 a car, that's a trillion dollars of revenues. And he has operating profits of somewhere around 30%. So that means $300 billion. If you say it's worth 15 times, that's $4.5 trillion. It's now $700 billion. That's how you get those numbers. But okay. that's not including robots, and that's not including autonomous vehicles, that's mm -hmm. not including batteries, uh, that's not including robots. He thinks robots are going to be bigger than cars. So there's so many things that are happening in Tesla. I can't, I, you know, one remarkable things, how do you keep track of this? I can't keep track of his analysis. You run these companies. How right. do you do that? Okay, let's use this as a tease because I want to come back. We have a lot more to talk about with Elon Musk, your investments with him, and all of the companies he's focused into. We should point out you're also personally and through Barron Funds an investor in Twitter. So we're going to talk about that a little later this morning, too. That's right, Becky. Next on Squawk Pod, why billionaire investor Ron Barron is super bullish on all things Elon Musk. This is not just about money. When you're talking about someone who's worth whatever he's worth, worth multiples of that in the future, trillions. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Becky is also with us. She is live at the annual Barron Investment Conference. She, of course, is joined by the man himself, Ron Barron, chairman and CEO of Barron Capital. 
It's safe to say Ron Barron is a huge Elon Musk bull, investing in two of his companies, Tesla and SpaceX. And he offered financing for Musk's dramatic bid to buy Twitter. Now, after the deal is done, Barron still remains optimistic about Musk's ability to run Twitter. He and Becky continue their conversation at the annual Barron conference. And just a heads up, people are starting to walk into the conference hall, so things might get a bit loud. Andrew, I think you probably know who this is. Um, I'm going to let you take a guess. If there's one person you most want to hear from today, who would it be? Well, Elon Musk just landed at Teterboro an hour ago, so that's my guess. Okay, that's Very good. good guess, Andrew. That is excellent reporting, and that is who is headed here today. Um, this is the two-year hiatus. That, since we've had a two-year hiatus here at the Barron Investment Conference, we are back. We're live at the Metropolitan Opera House at Lincoln Center. Um, this is the 29th annual Barron Conference, and Barron Capital celebrating its 40th year. Every year, Ron Barron celebrates and has some huge surprises that come. But, guys, I don't think I've ever had a surprise guest who's been quite as... Uh, big of a deal as Elon Musk today, because this is happening when Elon Musk is the center of kind of all news that heads through this. So, Ron, um, let's talk a little bit about that. You have Elon Musk coming here, and you're going to be interviewing him in yes. front of your guests here. Yes. What are you going to ask him? Well, I don't want to do the interview in advance, but I think that one of the interesting questions is that he's 51 years old, and, uh, and he works 16 or 17 hour days, seven days a week, and he flies all over the place, uh, and, uh, and, and why? And so he's the wealthiest man in the world, why does he do this? And so we invest in people, and talented people, and driven people, and people with a mission. He's got a mission. And what's the mission? And, uh, and it is remarkable how he does, I don't want to use him up. And, uh, and, and the things and, and everything is about trying to find out how things work and how you can do things better and how you can make the planet so it's habitable uh, and how you can get people off the planet if that comet comes that you're not expecting and how you can uh, you know even uh, wealth distribution around the world by making people educated a certain percentage of people around the world whether you're poor or rich uh, have genius capabilities but you can't use them unless you have uh, the internet, so he's given internet, he's making the internet available around the whole planet, as you saw what just happened with Ukraine. Another question I have that's really been bothering me is that how come where our government uh, is making aid to Ukraine and they pay for, you know, munitions and they pay for all sorts of things, uh, tanks and missiles, and how come they don't want to pay for the, uh, the internet? For you know, Starlink. For Starlink? How come? Uh, that's pretty strange. You're an investor in SpaceX, too, so, so this matters. I think Elon tweeted out earlier this year that it's costing the company something like $80 million a year to provide that internet connectivity for Ukraine. Uh, more. More than that. Probably $400 million a year. And so, uh, so how come? And uh, so he decided he was getting criticized for asking to be paid. Uh, and I don't really understand why that was. But I told him I thought that it was a good decision he made. And then he said, the heck with it. I'll just pay for it. And uh, so I think it was a good decision. You thought that was the good decision? Yes. To say, forget it, let's just go and do it anyway? Yeah, let's just give it anyway. Yeah. And humanitarian. And I think that uh, that's going to serve him well. But everyone knows who Starlink is now. 
and all these different countries around the world, they know about Starlink. And if the government wants to get Starlink in other places, they would have to pay for that, obviously. But you know, everyone's going to know about Starlink now, and everyone knows that, you know, see here, it takes a couple years normally to get the government approvals, to get landing rights, to get the ability to communicate. And now all of a sudden, uh, he did that in 48 hours. 48 hours, turned on the satellites, going over his, uh, Ukraine, and gave con connectivity. Is that why he did it without trying to seek payment first, just to get it up well, and he running? He did it to help. Yeah. He, Zelensky called and said, you know, our communications are going out. And what are we going to do? You know, can you help us? And so in 48 hours, shipped thousands of these user interfaces and you know, gave them to the troops. And then all of a sudden, the governments can communicate with the troops. I mean, is that why the government has a problem with it? I understand. Our government? Yeah, I, under, I understand entirely I why Elon would go ahead and just turn it on and make it happen quickly. Yeah, I think it's political. You think it's political? Yeah. So, you know, remember when, uh, when Biden had a, President Biden had a, a, you know, a meeting at the White House where he was talking about how great it's going to be to have electrification of cars. And, uh, and he invited the companies that are leading this transition. And uh, the company he singled out as, lead, as the leader was General Motors. And General Motors had sold 26 cars, 26 in a quarter. And, uh, and we sell you know, hundreds of thousands in a quarter, three or 400,000 a quarter. And, and they sold 26 cars. And they said that was the leader. I was, and Elon wasn't invited. Why was that? And because it's not a union place. And the reason it's not a union place is because the workers there are better treated than they are in union places. And they all work hard and they all become wealthy. One of the great stories is. Just, I mean, just to put that in context, you are somebody who has traditionally supported Democratic candidates. I'm a Democrat my whole life. So you're a Democrat your whole life. Obviously, it upset Elon. It sounds like it upset you, too. Yeah, I don't understand a lot of Democratic policies. I don't understand Republican policies that are negative for, uh, you know, I, I, don't under, I don't give to politicians. And, uh, you know, I, I think that Elon was talking about in uh, Twitter that he, one of his goals is to have the 20% of uh, far-left Democrats hate him and the 20% of far-right Republicans hate him. That's his goal. He <laughs> he's wants... getting towards that. Yeah, <laughs> I think he is. Yeah. Um, he's a really neat guy and very funny, and he's got a heart. And, uh, and he does things that when we go back again, why would someone like that work the hours he works? Yeah. And, uh, and, and be self I mean, he lives in a house that is a tiny little house on, and, and, and he doesn't live there all the time, but that's his house on the, on the, uh, you know, in Boca Chica, yeah. uh, in the facility there. He lives there when he goes there. It's a tiny, it's like a little mobile home thing. It's smaller than a mobile home. And he doesn't have any homes. In fact, one of the things that I thought was interesting, he said that when he bought Twitter, uh, he wanted to have the Twitter headquarters uh, closed down and turned into a homeless shelter. And so that made sense to me. He said, okay, now next couple or three weeks, he's going to live there. So I said, okay, I see. He's made it into a homeless shelter. He doesn't have a home. That's why he's made it into a home, so he could have some place to live. Um, well, it, speaking of Twitter, there's an article in the New York Times today that suggests layoffs are going to begin uh, starting today, and it's going to be layoffs of around 3,000 or so people, maybe up to 50% of the staff there. You're an 30, investor. I thought it said 3,700. 3,700. And yeah, there were 7,500 uh, employees. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
there's a lot of people there that aren't very productive, they work from home, uh, they haven't written very much code. You know, I, I didn't, I'm not the expert in Twitter yet. I will be in a couple years, maybe sooner than that, but I'm not yet. And, uh, and, and, and I think that the first thing you gotta do is right size the business and then the opportunities they have are gigantic. This is the place where you have content. It's the other place you go to look at people's faces and their kids and stuff. Here you go to have, he wants to have a digital town hall, digital uh, town center, you know, where you can debate. Uh, but you have to make sure that you moderate and you don't have hate speech on there and you don't have, there was something that was published a couple of days ago that said in the first time as soon as he took it over, there were 50,000 tweets in two or three days uh, with using the N-word. Yes. Uh, or, or using anti-Semitic tropes uh, in, in, in two or three days. There were 300 accounts. So 300 accounts. They were, they were troll accounts that were right. trying to see what they could exactly. get away with. Yeah. And so you don't want that. You want to have a verification of accounts for $8 a person and you can verify and then they can amplify your, your, uh, your, uh, what you want to say and, and who you can reach. I mean, he has made the statement uh, to probably to assuage advertisers that he doesn't want it to be a hellscape. Um, he's been clear about that. But I think there are advertisers who have questions and concerns. There was another story today. I don't know if it was in the Wall Street Journal that just talked about General Mills, Volkswagen, um, a lot of different companies, potentially L'Oreal, um, that are looking at Mondelez and Pfizer. Those are some of the other ones that are pausing their ads on Twitter right now. Do you think that he's going to run it in a way that will bring those advertisers back and, and convince them that this is where they want to be? I do, but I think that this is not just about money. And when, when you're talking about someone who's worth whatever he's worth, and uh, you're gonna be worth multiples of that in the future, trillions, trillions. And, uh, and you're talking about $20, $20 uh, billion. Um, to, to everyone it's, in the world, it's a lot of money, but for him, it's not relevant. And what he's doing, this is not, his goal is not just to make a huge amount of money. His goal is to help democracy. And you help democracy, you don't help democracy. And, and he says, the only way this works is that if a lot of speech that takes place there is stuff that he doesn't like. He says, you don't want to hear it. But on the other hand, that's what democracy is. You argue about things. But how but, do you decide but, between free speech and hate speech? That's the tricky So part. that's an easy thing to do. Now, if you think about what TikTok does, the TikTok can, you know, if you move your arm a certain way, they know what you want to watch. Right. And they know who you are. And if they watch enough things, then they know more about you than you know about yourself and more than your wife knows. They know everything. But just moving. And for him to think about, this guy sends up rockets and brings them back and lands them. Right. How could he not have software that can determine from the words that are being used and from the uh, content that people are watching? They know more about everyone than anyone else because of content. So they know all this and, they, and therefore, they should be able to figure out with software how to moderate and to prevent this hate stuff and anti-Semitic things and, and using N-words. They should not be allowed to do those things. Yeah. And, and, and he said even the sanctity of elections. Yeah. And so here, if everyone says, it's true, how do you avoid disinformation? They should be able to do that with software. We, we should point out, we spoke with the head of the ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, yesterday. He had just had a meeting with other civil rights leaders and people with Elon Musk, and he was very complimentary. He said Elon said all the right things in this meeting. I, I think Andrew has a question for you as well. Andrew? Hey, Ron, I, I was just trying to understand a lot of the things that Elon's trying to do right now with Twitter 
are effectively about fixing what might be described as traditional Twitter, meaning Twitter as we know it today. How much do you think, if we had this conversation two, three years from now, would Twitter look like it is today, meaning used as a social media platform, or do you really think it is, Because, and I think the potential, the prospect is that it turns into a true super app, possibly as a front end for all sorts of both financial payments. I've also long thought that if you ever think Tesla gets into the robo-taxi business, it becomes an install base and becomes the front end of that, and maybe he sells it to Tesla. I mean, these are very speculative ideas. But when you start to think sort of really big and long term about what this could be. Um, I don't think he sells it to Tesla. I think he could go public with it again. I think that's interesting. You're right about uh, he's fascinated with, with WeChat, uh, super app. I think that's interesting. Payments, uh, that's where he started with PayPal and X, X. That was interesting to him. So, uh, so you're right. So, so one of the stories I was telling Becky before uh, was about uh, me starting my career in the 1970s. And, uh, and Jay Pritzker, uh, Tom's dad, was someone who helped me out a lot at the very beginning when I was started. And one day, we're sitting on an airplane, we're going to Memphis, and, uh, and he said, Jay, what is the best deal you've ever done? And he said, the best deal I ever did was I bought a, uh, a sawmill in Georgia uh, for $50 million. And the person was selling me a sawmill that wasn't making very much money, but I was buying a forest that was worth $250 million. That was the best deal I ever made. And so he, the seller was selling one thing, he got a good deal for what he was selling, and he was buying something else when he got a good deal for buying. And so the same thing with Twitter. People are criticizing and saying he way overpaid. He didn't overpay. He bought something that had this installed base and had all this content, and he could do something with it. So it's not really... Uh, so, so the seller was selling one thing. The, the, the people who ran Twitter did a horrible job running it, but they did an incredible job getting the maximum value for the shareholders of Twitter uh, when Elon bought it. And as far as Elon, uh, he's bought something that he can make into something really special compared to what it is. Now we'll see if he can do it or not, but I have to study it. I'm not the expert on it yet. I will be. We'll be right back with more Squawk Pod after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Zach Valisi. Here's what else is happening today. The October employment report is out. The economy adding 261,000 new jobs last month, topping expectations. Investors responded positively to this news, but the hot number means there's still more work to do for the Federal Reserve as it tries to tamp down record high inflation and slow a strong labor market. And that's the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. 
Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.